All right, you ready? Hi, this is Mike Rowe of the 77s and Lost Dogs and Kerosene Halo, and this is the True Tunes Podcast. Is that right? Okay. I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome back to our special two-part exploration of the life, the music, and the mystery that is Michael Rowe of the 77s, Kerosene Halo, and the Lost Dogs. If you have not heard part one, you might want to listen to that one first. Mike talks about his earliest musical roots, influences, experiments, and experiences, and even got us a copy of the first record he ever appeared on. If you want to listen to part two first, that's fine too. Just make sure not to miss part one. Heading down that this episode, Mike will talk about how his life, philosophy, and even faith have evolved over 50 years in this strange space. We'll also hear from some longtime friends and professional colleagues of Mike's on what it's been like to know and work with Doc Love over the years. Plus, we'll hear about the origins of the Lost Dogs, a veritable supergroup of unknown legends. after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. (laughs) Hey there, 
I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. It really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. And now, one of the most compelling rock stars too few people have ever heard of, Michael Rowe. I met Mike in about 1981 or 82, just briefly. I was a roadie for DA and uh, met him up at the warehouse a few times. And over the years, we would see each other at festivals. I was a big 77s fan. I'm not certain about this, but I think I even saw the Scratch Band once really, really early. But anyway, I really got to know Mike when we teamed up to do the Lost Dogs with Gene Eugene and Terry Scott Taylor. Ever since then, we've become closer and closer, and he's one of my best friends in the world. I've always loved him and, and really uh, idolized his playing and, and his voice. He's got one of the most amazing voices that I've ever heard. And uh, his guitar playing is just like nobody else. And um, I, I got a funny story about Mike. The first time I roomed with him was on the first Lost Dogs tour way back in like 92 or something like that. And we were staying in some Motel 6, and we were all happy because we found we had two to a room instead of like four to a room. It was one of those Motel 6s with the two beds, and then you were looking at the towards the bathroom, and there's like the bathroom, and there's like a sink that's right there in the middle. So you wake up, and you're staring at that. And I woke up in the morning, and I hear this noise, and it's Mike, um, and he's naked, and he's um, blow-drying his, his uh, butt. And... Um, to wake up to that first thing in the morning was uh, pretty shocking, and I finally got up the nerve to ask him why, and he said because it, it uh, prevents chafing. But anyway, I love Mike, love him to death, and uh, he'll always be one of my dearest friends, and there's nobody else in the world like him. He is one of a kind, and I appreciate that about him. I appreciate, just don't know what I'd do without him in my life. So that's my love affair with uh, Dr. Love, Michael Rowe. That was Derry Darty of the Choir and Lost Dogs, who is also one half of Kerosene Halo alongside Mr. Rowe.
would you agree with me that maybe the the first phase of the 77s kind of came to a peak with the 88 record is that sort of the capstone on that first era and then then the second chapter starts to unfold after that yeah probably because we had already made the first three albums by the time the 88 concert was performed and the group would only be together for one more year after that concert was performed we were already starting to perform the material from sticks and stones which was kind of a posthumous release for that first group that was the second incarnation i I always look at it as there's been three four incarnations of the band which was the scratch band era the 80s era with aaron then the early 90s with aaron and david lenhart mark Harmon, and then 95 to the present with mark Harmon, myself and bruce all of those have been distinct and yet we've been building upon what it's you know what it always was but 88 definitely was a culmination of we'd been playing all the time we were trying to get a a a record deal and so we were playing constantly and it was our sound man shalom that said you guys have got to get this on tape this is too good to waste and so we spent a whole week setting up that recording we didn't just play that night and someone hit record it was very carefully planned Uh, we ran lines back from the auditorium into the studio the exit studio we did endless sound checking making sure all the lines were clean that we had enough mics and we recorded it to multi-track you know we did it and then it was oh that was great and then it just sat there for several years until i was working with joey taylor and gene eugene you know with their broken brainstorm labels and we needed an album out really fast for some reason. We'd given them Sticks and Stones, and gosh, I can't remember if Pray Naked had come out yet, but at some point, Joey needed an album, and I said, well, we got this, what I remember is a really good concert on multi-track, and he just went, ah, live records don't sell. And I said, well, let's, let's just see about that. And so we weren't under contract to them. So I flew the tapes down to, uh, to Pachyderm, uh, and Dino oh. Elefante, wow. uh, and we we pulled the tapes up at Dino's, and he, Dino lost his mind. He just goes, "Oh my God!" He said, "I'll sign you guys. I'll even give Mike. I'll give you a solo deal, right?" Because he was thrilled when he heard that. He just saw dollar signs, <laughs> unlike Joey. So I walk. I said, "Excuse me," and I went out, went in the other room, and I found a phone. And I called Joe, and I said. Dino wants it. We're going to sign to Pachyderm. You know, he, Joey said, don't do it. Don't do it. I'll put it out. Mission accomplished. I hung up the phone. I said, all right, Dino, well, we'll talk later. And I flew back to SAC. I called Steve Griffin and I said, we need to book a studio now. We're going to go in and raise this Titanic back to life. And we went in there and, you know, cleaned it up, fixed some things, not too many. Fortunately, you know, there was only a few technical glitches that need to be fixed, a few flubs here and there for the most part what you hear is what we did and uh, he did a brilliant job mixing it we put it out and you'd have to ask joey what it sold i don't remember i think it did okay but i think it left a lasting impression on the fans because now they were hearing the band a lot of them had never heard right you know they unless they saw us at cornerstone or play in, in california somewhere the majority of our fan base to that point had not heard the group live so right when they heard this record, they're going, oh my gosh, these guys really rock. Because it was very energetic. 
you know, yeah. the group was always live, no matter what we did in the studio, how poppy it got. When we hit the stage, it was always a take no prisoners approach because that's how we started doing all those lunchtime things back when we were the scratch band. We had to prove to any audience, it was like the first time. It's like you get in, you either you prove yourself or you're out, right? And that that gave us a certain approach on stage that to this minute has never left, you know? It's a it's an A chair on full on assault. Beyond the just muscle, there's just a lot of atmosphere and vibe. So when you listen back to that show, what jumps out at you? How does it make you feel? I, first of all, I can't believe how good we were. Second, I know why we were, because we were playing nonstop. I think of all the clubs we were playing in San Francisco. We, we played every one of Bill Graham's clubs, all the hip places in San Francisco. We played in San Jose. We played in San Luis Obispo, L.A., anywhere on the west coast we could get to and we were rehearsing non-stop playing non-stop that's what makes a band really really good you know when i hear led zeppelin at their peak the live recordings and i go my gosh how could how could they be so good it's because that's all they did you know Mm -hmm. it wasn't a they weren't working day jobs and then going in and trying to make it good it was like they were living it and so what i hear when i hear that record is us actually being a band 24 7 and that was the payoff we were totally inside of it learning how to just put on a real rocking show and i you know i loved the doors i wanted to try to get some of that that in there you know that whole jim morrison the way that you never knew what was going to happen and the, the long jams uh, a lot of that atmosphere and vibe comes from that group also the Yardbirds and some of those 60s bands the jamming, the Grateful Dead, all of that stuff is sort of all thrown in there. Uh, but it had a very definite blues rock bass, you know, like Fleet, the early Fleetwood Mac before Stevie Nicks. It had that same kind of energy, you know, that pent up just like a, like a caged lion let out of a cage. That's what we did, that's what we were good at. One song that really captivated me, and the version on the Island record is just a mind-bending thing, and then you completely you know, reinvented it on the 88 record, is uh, I Could Laugh. Tell me about that particular song and, and where that comes from compositionally, and then your thinking and how you adapted it for the, 
for the live version? Well, in those days, I was going through a lot of emotional turmoil. Um, and so sometimes I would just get out a, you know, a, a, a notepad from my, you know, real estate agent, you know, or my grandfather's right, yeah. one, you know, the ones that are sitting around those little white tablets and it says yeah. Valley Title Company with a bunch of numbers. <laughs> I would grab one of those and I would just furiously write down everything I was feeling, you know, all in one go, almost like a stream of consciousness diary entry. Right. And that's how the lust came about. And that's how I Could Laugh came about. Both of those came about in very similar ways. So uh, when I had this thing, I kind of conceived it as a tone poem. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I could uh, sort of put this into a musical form, kind of an open-ended thing? Mm -hmm. And I'd been listening to a lot of Velvet Underground um, at the time, and there was a song called Some Kind of Love. You know, and, and Lou Reed's going, some kind of love. You know, it's got that thing and it's like just a blend one. between speaking and singing. It's almost yeah. singing, but it's really, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and it goes on for a long time on one chord. You know, it, yeah. it only varies, I think, when it gets to a bridge later in the song where it just goes this other place. So I thought, you know, maybe I could do something like that, but a longer form of it. So one day I brought the tablet into the studio and I told Daryl Zachman, the engineer, I said, can you give me a, just an hour in the studio, you know, on lunch, I want to do this thing. And I, and you know, we were all working there. I mean, Griffith was in one part of the building and Jan Eric was in another part and, and Jimmy Abeg was a janitor cleaning toilets. And I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, hey man, will you help me do a thing? And he says, well, what kind of thing? And I go, just grab your acoustic guitar for a minute. And so we ran into the studio and, and I had Daryl position us, you know, side by side. And I think I'd already run a kind of perfunctory sort of musical demo, like with me sort of playing the changes. And I kind of showed him what I wanted. I said, all right, so what we're going to do is you and I are going to sit and just sort of jam on this thing along to my demo and I'm shouting directions when it goes to the chorus, and here's the chorus, here's how it goes. So, you know, I kind of was sing, talking it, and then I'd say, all right, here we come, here it comes. And then so he knew to go to that B flat to the A minor back and forth. And, you know, Jimmy's nothing if not a sort of shoot from the hip guy, and I'm the same way. So we're almost like cosmic brothers in that way on the instrument. Mm -hmm. We're able to sort of read each other's minds, and it, it didn't take a lot of effort to get him to fall into this thing so we hit record daryl ran it down and we recorded it and so the the, the performance you eventually hear on that island record is the two of us doing that thing to my mm -hmm. guide track uh but then when we produced it for the album i wanted it in fact i thought it was just kind of a joke and robert vaughn he yeah. was up there in sacramento around the time that i was playing this you know, and he walked in and he heard it and said, what is this? And I go, oh, it's just this thing me and Jimmy did. It's just kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's nothing. He goes, that's going on the album. And I go, what do you mean? You know, because we were in the middle of putting that album together. And he says, that's got to go on the album. And I go, you're serious? And he says, yeah, that's the best thing on there. Listen to that. You know, it's kind of like Lou Reed, you know. And I said, well, that was kind of my inspiration. But he was just captivated by it. And see, when I, when I heard that, that gave me the confidence that maybe there was more to it than just a sort of a throwaway mama don't understand 
She wants to hold my hand night and day And she don't like my clothes and They're wearing thin on her nerves And she don't like my hair and My glorious crown brings her down And she won't take me serious Think I'll join the circus, be a clown so then when we got Robert Musso to come in and do the record, he was a little bit upset that there were a couple of demo things now that uh, he had to put his name on. And he right. said, well, if I'm going to include this demo on the album, I've got to have my own stamp on it. We've got to dress it up a little more. The first thing he came up with was having a Bongo Bob come in with a huge battery of analog percussion, like every piece of, yeah. you know, shaky thing. Like It's kind of like what Steve Hindelong does. Yeah. And he laid it all out on the table. And, the, and it, it was dozens of things, right? And so what we did was we had, we rolled the tape and had Bob just sit there and kind of pick up stuff and shake things. So you'll hear things coming in and out. He'll start to play the tambourine, then it just goes away right then you yeah. hear these other stuff and it's all kind of buried in the background subliminally you know you can really do a lot with a track when you think in those terms you know yeah. uh, thinking on the conscious level and also on the unconscious level and robert Musso was totally into that having worked with so many experimental artists so right. then we got mark tootle to go in and do a prepared piano yeah. thing a la john cage where we we attached you know duct tape and put you know popsicle sticks and other things mm -hmm. in the piano and then had him go along the strings and and hit it and then we would mess with that so there's all kinds of junk happening on that track which gives it a lot more atmosphere than it had with just me and jimmy playing on it mm -hmm. then we when we were in new york city mixing it robert had me play the fender six string bass which you hear only on the choruses mm -hmm. and uh that gave it yet another dimension so i really enjoyed him as a producer when working with him outside of the bounds of just us recreating our demos when he was contributing something really really left field like that i wish we could have done more things like that because that i learned a lot and it was fun and it gave that song a, a much wider emotional range than i think it would have had if it just been me singing over a me and Jimmy Jam kind of deal. So that song completely, I mean, it shook me and comforted me at the same time at, as a 16 year old listening to that thing. Like it's so raw and confessional, but also still oblique. And then the music fits that so well. It's not funny at all. Should I And then you close the 88 record with a version that's got the band and it's, it's yeah you know there's aaron playing and it's now it's very very different yeah that one is a little bit more like this is the end by the doors you know mm -hmm. we i use some of robbie krieger's licks and i think aaron's playing the beat which is kind of a slow samba 
Yeah. I think what it was is that, you know, we needed to fill a lot of time when we were playing those club dates because we'd be, do two or three sets and, you know, we didn't have a lot of material that we wanted to do. So doing I Could Laugh gave us an easy 10 minutes or more. And, and then if you did it sort of doors the end style, um, it just opened it up to a lot more range. You know, I could play electric guitar and right, right. it was great. I love that. See, to me, that's when the workshop of the 77s was running on all four cylinders. And, and I wish what I don't, I no longer sit around wishing that we'd been big stars or a big popular platinum selling band. What I wish is that we would have done more things like that. Because mm. to me, when you really stretch your limit of creativity with something that's a little bit left of center and you're not thinking in terms of a standard pop song with the verse chorus, verse chorus bridge, you know, mm. um, I think. I got so much more out of that musically and personally, and I think the fans picked up on that. I, I just wish that we had stretched ourselves a little more. If we'd had a producer, you know, I always wanted to have T-Bone Burnett because I figured he was the guy who would have gotten it out of us. Um, right. But there are other producers that would have. Uh, somebody that would have forced you to think about why you wrote the song and what you're really trying to say with it and what kind of atmosphere you want to create with it. and, and and don't just do this perfunctory running it down and trying to get it good on tape and that's it, you know. Right, right. Uh, in the case of I Could Laugh, that was an experiment that worked. And yeah. I only wish we'd done more things like that. going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Michael Rowe right after this. Hello, I'm Chris, and I'm a Patreon supporter of the True Tunes podcast, which has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts. I can always expect John's warm voice and insightful questions to draw out the stories, wisdom, and faith of beloved and new to me musical artists. 
After every episode, I'm always listening with fresh ears to favorite albums or visiting new albums for the first time. It's just like when I used to visit the old True Tune store in Wheaton, Illinois, but now I can visit every week with new episodes. True Tune's Patreon supporters support the show with monthly donations of $5, $10, or $20, which helps to cover the cost of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high-quality, lossless WAV files of each episode that we can download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on True Tune swag, and more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes or finding the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing is not the right fit for you, but you'd like to give us a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that on the show notes page. Thanks and enjoy. Okay, back to my chat with Michael Rowe. Ah, Michael Rowe. Well, I could tell you about the time Mike asked me to pay for a pack of cigarettes from the grocery store back in the 90s. I didn't smoke, so it felt very awkward. Uh, I could tell you stories of Mike producing the second Love Coma album, which is my band, and constantly telling us how we're doing it all wrong after just about every take. I could also share... Uh, with you how intimidated I was working with Mike because of his history with the 77s and Lost Dogs and and the prowess and the craft of songwriting, singing and guitar playing. I mean, he's out of this world. All I really know is that for some reason Mike has welcomed me and invited me in to be a part of his musical journey from time to time and I am forever grateful. My band Love Coma toured with the 77s throughout the 90s. Mike and I shared the stage, gosh, several times at the Cornerstone Festival throughout the years. Um, Mike and, and Derry Doherty and I toured together back in 2015 all across the states. Um, what can I say? It's been a pleasure to stand next to his fire from time to time. Thanks, Mike. You know that voice. That was our good friend and frequent in-house artist, Chris Taylor. I remember one of the first times I met Chris, we bonded over our mutual love of the 77s. Thanks, Chris. So in the early 90s, alongside the kind of rise of that 77's 3.0, you do a project, I have a cassette of it here somewhere, a pre-release that was sent to me by Brainstorm that was just called Taylor 
Doherty, Eugene, and Roe. It didn't even have Lost Dogs written on it yet. So tell me about the Lost Dogs and what you originally thought it was going to be versus what it became and what kind of impact that has had on you uh, and your life and your work. Well, if it's had a huge impact. Uh, the origin of the band depends on who you ask because oh. Ojo Taylor has his own version. I have a slightly different version than Joey and Gene Eugene had his. All I know is I got a phone call from one of them. I believe it was Joe because he was running that brainstorm label at the time. And he says, hey, you know, the uh, Traveling Wilburys had done really well with that record they did where you get these five icons together and mm -hmm. you just give them different names. And, you know, that's a record that should have never worked. I mean, those things never work. Even with the best of intentions on their best behavior, these projects right. sometimes just don't work. Either yeah. the material isn't right or they didn't right. get it down right. I mean, you know, yeah. it just, yeah. you can't predict it. But... Joey calls me and he says, hey, we're thinking about doing kind of a Christian Traveling Wilburys thing. You know, I, I, I'm going to be in it. And we, we got Terry Taylor lined up. He's willing to do it. And I think, you know, uh, Derry Doherty from the choir. And, I, you know, I knew Derry kind of. You know, I met him and Steve along the way. And we were, we weren't close pals, but we were, you know, nice acquaintances. And I was a little bit intimidated by Terry because, you know, he had this kind of standoffish at least to me, up until I really got to know him. I Anytime I ran across the guys from Daniel Amos, it was just sort of like, you know, get away. I don't want to be around those guys, you know. <laughs> and uh, Joe, I you know, I knew pretty well working with him on the label. But I thought, well, how's that going to work musically? You know, what's that yeah. going to be like? You know, God rules meets, you know, country <laughs> rock. I don't, I don't know. I didn't think that much about it. And I said, yeah, well... I, I said, my only caveat is it's got to be great. I don't want to do this if it's going to suck. And he says, oh, no, we wouldn't put it off if it sucks. So then that that ended that conversation, and I never gave it any thought. And maybe, I don't know how many months later, Gene Eugene calls me, and he says, yeah, so we're thinking about this Wilbury thing. And I said, oh, well, he says, yeah, I'm going to be in it. I don't think, we, we don't want Joe in that. And I'm going, well, that's interesting. Joe was the one that I assumed thought it up and was going to do it. He said, no, nah, we got to get him out of there. That's not going to work. It's got to be, you know, the four of us. And, of course, when Joey hears this, I've told him this to his face many times, and we've debated the topic about whose idea it actually was. But in the end, I ended up flying down there and meeting with Terry, Gene, Derry. We started recording. We set up in a circle. Gene had a drum machine. We, and we put down a beat, and I brought in a bunch of orphan songs that I either hadn't finished or weren't appropriate for uh, 77s, and everyone else kind of had theirs, too, and some of these were made up on the spot, like, uh, you know, Breathe Deep, where Terry had the lion's share of the thing, and maybe someone would come up with a line or a phrase, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. And, and we just kept recording and recording, and, and because the CD was a relatively new format, we wanted to fill it up, so we made sure to have like a bunch of songs, you know. Right. And uh, it was fun and interesting. And the first record kind of had a folky country alt, you know, thing to it, which was, I think we had stumbled onto something that, yeah. for whatever reason, felt like it worked. I think yes. what was unfortunate is that the album came out, and even though it sold very well, I think, and we started to get gigs and play at festivals and stuff we got pegged early on as a country band which i thought was very unfortunate because even though 
country was part of what we were doing. We had the pedal steel on there, and I think mm-hmm. that made people think that. And also, we weren't afraid of leaning into some of that bluegrass country roots. You know, a lot of roots music. There's blues on there. There's, you know, it's just all over the map. But it had a kind of flavor that was kind of light. Why is the devil red? Why is the devil blue? Why is the devil red? Why is the devil hue? You give the devil a pitchfork, you give the devil horns, you give the devil sulfur, and you give the devil corns. Does he look like Robert De Niro with them big long fingernails? Does it make you dance like Chero or sing like Jerry Vale? But who's that looking like an angel of light? Who's that dressed in a gown of white? Who's that saying everything's alright? Who's that dripping? I feel like you told me once that you guys didn't expect to do more than one project, that this was just a one-off kind of fun side thing and you didn't even know if it would come out. I don't remember. It's been 30 years now, but it wasn't as if, okay, we're going to sign and do four albums. Like, no, I, 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 we didn't even know if it would, you know, amount to anything. I just think once we got it all together and it got mixed and they decided to release it, well, well, you know, we, we did it. Let's see what it does. And it, and it, it did fairly well and then we went out and did some shows and you know it kind of worked so uh when it was time to do another one then it seemed like the natural thing to do because the first one went well and the as we grew we kept the country flavor but also you know the the style and the music and everything started to expand out into its own identity maybe a little bit where the band started to get an identity beyond just that sort of throw everything in the bag and see what you know what works little by little the band came up with a format where we would all do the sort of sunny and share insult each other on stage thing you know we're all where we're all don rickles insulting one another and then and then terry and i and the rest of us start developing these gags and routines yeah. You know, certain things that we would, stories we would tell. And, you know, I I was kind of the Betty White of the group where I'd just come up with these inane concepts and things and the guys would all kind of go, what? What is he saying? You know, and and I'd keep expounding on them and then they'd all attack me. And, and it turned into an act gradually, yeah. which, which was a lot of fun. And I think a lot of people enjoyed it. it. Families enjoyed it a lot. I think people in the Midwest enjoyed it. I think some of the rock fans enjoyed it. Um, some of them didn't. Some still think we're just a lame country rock band that they wish we would just stop doing so that we'd get back to doing our own band stuff. You know, it's the, yeah. the response has been kind of all over That's the map. <laughs> I remember you guys playing at Cornerstone, obviously, a million times, but I actually brought you to Wheaton and we did a show at a at some really old um, chapel kind of a place that was packed. And I remember that act kind of evolving. You know, it was it was like watching Hee Haw for hipsters <laughs> it was, well, it was really fun and see it's funny you mentioned hee-haw because i think for some people that element of it was something that was not something they wanted to see us do you know some of these uh fans of ours held us in this sort of high mystique area mm-hmm. 
where they assume that I sit around wearing black all day with the you know the curtains drawn, candles lit, and I'm just thinking these heavy thoughts. And Terry's this sort of heavy, you know, bookish guy who's sitting around, you know, just thinking all this deep stuff. And and they didn't want to know about our cornball side, the yeah. fact that we liked silly things and funny things from television back in the 50s and 60s and cowboy music yeah. and and you know the mickey mouse club and things like that it was something that people a lot of people didn't want to know because it sort of dismantled their image of who they thought we were as people let's do this my guitar my guitar well, what's wrong with your guitar you dang you my can't pass it's not plugged in all the way Oh, you know, your broken-down equipment is a broken-down studio. Oh, let me see your studio in oh, some guy's mom's bedroom. Hey, at least our stuff is in working condition. You yeah, but you gotta to ask, your, ask his mom if you can record. <laughs> Times may be hard. As my rock ambitions failed, it was a lot more fun to then just go back to being myself. And I, I don't want to speak for Terry, but I think he might have felt the same way, you know, and to a lesser extent, you know, Gene and Derry. But I don't even know if they ever even, you know, bothered with those kinds of thoughts. But I know me and Terry certainly did because we were we were kind of caught up in our in one kind of image, trying to sell that image. And when you know, when it failed in, in the secular market for whatever reason, we had a lot more freedom in that CCM market to s just sort of go off and do whatever, you know. That's one advantage I think it's given us is that uh, when you don't have big success in the general marketplace, but you do have a minor sort of cult following in, in another marketplace or an alternate universe mm -hmm. musically, mm -hmm. it gives you a lot of freedom to just do whatever the heck you want. And right. because of that, a lot more stuff came out because we weren't being controlled by a record company to follow up on some success. It was just sort of right. like, all right, we did that. Now let's do this. It was, it was more like throwing a periodical magazine out, you know, and the fans yeah. still kind of treat it that way. You know, we could spend four or five years on a new record and just think it was the next biggest thing since Colossus and put it out. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Now what else you got? You know, right. And it's frustrating. Right. It's Ravenous. really frustrating yeah. because we want right. people to, when we do something that we think is a big deal, we want them to think it too. But they yeah. don't. They just consume it. They eat it up, spit it out, and they're ready for the next one. And, wow. But what that does is it forces you to be prolific and get on to yeah. doing more stuff. So, right. you know, it's a compromise. It's, but that's why there's so many records out, you know. Yeah. Think of well, how many albums uh, yeah. and records Terry and, and Daniel Amos have done and then... 77s and all all of our collective bands it's like why right. is there so much music well because we've had to make a living you know yeah. and so we've been forced to be creative and forced to be prolific for better or worse you know i mean i think that i think that's a good thing it's better than 
you know, doing some great record and then 10 years later something else comes out that people are waiting for and it's just not as good and it's sort of like, eh, you know. (laughs) Well, it's also, I mean, I remember sending a Lost Dogs project to somebody from the leading Americana music magazine when it was in the late 90s. And I said, you guys have to be talking about this group. I mean, every record has been great. They've been doing this since 1990, 91. And I wrote this whole thing. It was like I was acting as your publicist. And I wrote Mm -hmm. wrote a, a letter explaining why this is an amazing story. Because each of the people making up this band are basically troubadours in other bands that are just as obscure as this one. And you guys need to do a story about the, the Lost Dogs for I the almost Americana don't want to hear what you're going to say, but go ahead. <laughs> Tell me their response. Yeah, it was, oh, yeah, the music's cool, but they're a Christian band. We don't cover Ah, ah there it is. <laughs> yeah, There's the rub. There's the bugaboo. Really, yeah, right. Not even going to really think about no. it. And, and I mean, the, the whole reason I did True Tunes was to create a safe space for these this kind of music to, to not get pigeonholed as CCM music. But it didn't even, I said, did you listen to the record? Do you know anything about it? It's not CCM. They're, nope, it came from that world and we, we don't talk about that. We're not, that's not part of us. And that's just a, that kind of prejudice is, was frustrating for the fans because we know that as Buddy Miller made his rise and vigilantes were knocking on the door, it's like, there's the lost dogs. And they, in my opinion, that particular group should have been able to slide right into that thing and get right up to the floor. Oh, of course. And they yeah. write it off as, no, can't be this, always has to be that. They won't even allow yeah. themselves to think it, you know. And that word Christian, which gets worse and worse all the time now as the, as <laughs> right. the culture becomes more right. anti-Christ, right? Well, and as the, as the word, yeah. as Christians become more anti-Christian in, a lot right. of in terms of right. the way they're acting, we're kind of earning the ghetto at this point. Well, and you know, I remember Joni Mitchell saying something that I... I didn't. I wish I'd. I'm in a way. I'm glad I didn't know she said it until years later when I lived it. Which is the way you enter this business is pretty much the way you also exit. In other mm-hmm. words, how you originally establish your image, for better or worse, is going to stick to you. Particularly mm-hmm. if you're successful with that image. Right. So people that want to branch out and do something else, they don't. T- it's not taken seriously because they are pigeonholed in a sense. You know that's happens right. to a lot of actors. Certainly, mm-hmm. it's happened to a lot of musicians. Last night I kissed your lips just like before, but it was in her eyes she wanted something more. I never said. How did that, the relationships there with the guys and the time you spent in that band, what did that mean to you? You know, it took a while to get to know these guys, but once I did and I got to know all the quirky aspects of their personalities, um, I think we all got something different from it, but it began to feel like we were getting away with something, like it was a fishing trip, (laughs) boys club, you know. It's like we had all our own bands with their own 
fraught with their own histories and sort of, you know, entanglements. You know how when you're in a group for a long time, you develop certain kind of resentments or negative feelings towards either the music itself or the members or certain aspects of all of it. You know, it, it kind of hangs on you a little bit. So to be able to back out and gamble with another group just for the fun, you know, and have it not really matter that much and just get together, put all these songs together and laugh and, and it, it was a lot of fun, and it was really a great thing to be able to do. Um, uh, but then we were hit with something really bizarre, which was losing, you know, Gene. That that was really a heavy thing to experience, and of course, it knocked us sideways for a while. Your daddy would call out your name, and you'd run through the dark. But the decision at his funeral to keep going, I think, was critical. You know, we kind of sort of talked ourselves into thinking that Gene would want us to keep doing it. And we kept doing it and made a lot, whole lot more great music. Eventually, Steve Hindelong found his way in and, and, it, and the chemistry, we created a new chemistry. Jimmy's eyes were round and bright, a sinister never going to be the same without Gene. Gene was in many ways the crown jewel of the band and I took him for granted you know because he was so frustrating to work with on a number of levels uh, for all of us you know his lifestyle and the way he conducted business or didn't uh, <laughs> right. caused a lot of frustration and, and in, you know at sometimes resentment that made it you know kind of colored my ability to appreciate him and the genius that he was, you know, I always did, but there was all that personal stuff too, you know. Right. Right. We always loved Gene, but you know, he was always a ticklish figure in our in the midst of us because he had control of it. It was his band; he he can kind of controlled how the whole thing went. So as long as he was at the helm, 
there were certain uh, boundaries that we couldn't really get outside of. Once he checked out and we started over from ground zero, not really. We started over with, a, you know, like a three-legged right. dog. That's why we had yeah. that song. I see him when he's sleeping, twitches three good legs. And I can tell he's dreaming about his hunting days. For the time being, guess he's doing okay. He's got a few miles left, knock on wood. He's a three-legged dog, but he's still pretty good. You know, his death taught us a lot about ourselves and, and about the whole experience. And I, there isn't a whole lot I wouldn't do to get him back, to be oh, honest gosh, with yeah. you. With, with all, of the, all of his quirks and all the frustrations I had working with him, it's like uh, that, that guy was like someone up from outer space. It's like mm -hmm. he was a man out of time from another era who it's like he came down in a time capsule and, and visited us for a while, like a little alien, you know, living amongst <laughs> us. And then he just got in his rocket ship and took off. Yeah. You know? so, it's, it was interesting to me how even after he was gone, listening to Lost Dogs records, you can almost trick yourself into thinking you're hearing him there still. Like there's this space, there's this vibe that happens. And um, he meant so much to to all of us that it, I think I was glad to hear you kept going because there's still that mm -hmm. that uh, haunting sound in there. I There's more of my conversation with Michael Rowe coming right up. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else, 
in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. True Tunes is on the road. I've been to Indiana, California, Tennessee, Iowa, and Illinois so far, and we are currently looking at opportunities around the country. These conversations have been a lot of fun, with me bringing a turntable and some records and a guitar, and often finding artists or other special guests to join me. I've also done songwriting workshops, music business clinics, and even some conversations about how we can slow ourselves down and listen to music more carefully, more thoughtfully, and yes, more spiritually. So there's kind of something for everyone. You can follow all of the action at truetunes.com slash events. And if you would be interested in having me come speak in your neck of the woods, drop me a line at jjt at truetunes.com and let me know. I'm also excited to be aligning with the Porchlight Network for house shows. Porchlight is a growing network of house show venues around the country, and you can learn more at porchlight.art. So, for house shows, look me up at Porchlight. For schools, venues, churches, or other opportunities, just connect with me directly. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. Now, back to my conversation with Mike Rowe. Yeah, so Mike Rowe, uh, you know, you would know it when you see him rocking out a, a wicked guitar solo that he's one of the, the softest men you'll, you'll ever meet. I mean, like, okay, he makes life really hard on himself for a guy that really likes uh, things to go easy in life because he brings so much uh, paraphernalia on the road, like two big suitcases, and, and those suitcases are full of mostly pillows because he has about five different kinds of pillows. You got your body, body pillow, you got your buckwheat pillow, you've got your uh, thing he calls bony in the car that's shaped like a bone, and and he's got a, a personal fan that he, he carries around that, uh, you know, Derry will often pack the van, we'll be packing it, and then we'll leave that out, and we'll be getting the van in there just leaned up against, a, you know, a wall or something, he doesn't want to put it in, <laughs> we make him pay for that, but 
He's got all this stuff, and so then when you get to the hotel, uh, one of my favorite moments that, that tends to occur is when sometimes you go into a hotel and the elevator is not right on the, they don't have one on the bottom floor. They have like a little half set of stairs. It might only be, you know, eight or 10 stairs, but he stands there at the bottom of the stairs with all his stuff around him, suitcases, guitars, and things, just all in a, in a slumped over, looking so sad and defeated, like how will he ever make that? And, you know, I go over and usually carry something up for him to help him out, you know. But then he goes and looks around, he, he, he looks in his room, and we got our different rooms, and then he wants to see everybody's room. He'll, he'll knock him under, hey Steve, hey Steve, let me see your room. Open up, he comes walking around in there, he goes, yeah, the vibe, your vibe is better than mine. Can we trade? Like what? Go in there and his room will be exactly the same, or I don't know what it'll be, you know? But, uh, you know, not, nobody ever trades with him. But sometimes he'll go down and try to get a different room for whatever reason. Uh, what else? Okay, so then the next day you're driving down the road and right away, I mean, whatever, what rock and roll van ever got pulled over because one of the guys wanted to, us to stop at Walgreens to get a facial mask? I mean, okay, I'll admit, I've, I've, I'll do the facial mask once in a while, but I'm not going to say it out loud, you know what I mean? I'm not going to uh, make the guys pull over the van for it. So that's the kind of thing that uh, we put up with. He is a ridiculous man, but I sure do love him a lot. Mike is a real authentic person. He tells you the truth straight out, like you want a friend to do. And uh, I'm really glad uh, that he's in my life and that I can call him a friend. Michael Rowe. That was the choir's Steve Hindelong, who is now a member of the Lost Dogs. Thanks, Steve. So now the Lost Dogs are happening all throughout the 90s and the 2000s. You've got the three-piece version of the 77s, and you've done solo work. You've got a lot to keep straight in your head at that point. How did you, like, say by the late 90s or around 2000, how did you keep track of all of who you were at any given moment and what you were focused on and how everything kind of had a unique flavor? And So how did that all work in your mind? Well, I, I didn't really think of it like that. Usually it was coming down to what was available to do at the time to keep working. So if, for instance, uh, 
the lost dogs weren't happening because of something else. We usually were on a sort of a three-year thing where we would do a record and then it'd be another three or four years before we did another one. So if 77s weren't active for whatever reason, I would do a solo thing, I'd do a solo tour, and then whoever I was helping me get the record out would say, well, you gotta have a, a record if we're gonna do a tour. You can't tour without a record, so then I'd have to make a record. Then, oh, well, you're booked in Cornerstone. You can't just go there with nothing. You have to have something to sell. So most of it was more pragmatic. None of us were ever that practical. It was all right. always usually about how to make a buck, how to pay rent, you know, what can we do right now to get some money, you know? Yeah. But sometimes it comes down to the old Brian Wilson, you know, write a song, get a hamburger. You know, it's like whatever it takes to get the job done. You know, I yeah. wish I could give you a loftier answer to that question. There is something lofty in that, though. And what I what I love about this weird kind of tribe that we've all been a part of is because we're we're just trying to sustain something because there's these moments that happen. And we want those moments so bad that we'll do whatever it takes to keep doing this and not have to go get a straight job. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Uh, well, any, um, I always say just anything to keep from working, you know, no matter how much work you put into music, you always feel like the work is going towards something that means something to you. So yeah, you try right. not to look at it as work, even though in many cases, it's harder work than a straight gig. You know, yeah. like oh, when yeah. we go on tour, I'm working 18 hours a day for three weeks or more. And, and it's, it's the hardest work I've ever done in my life. It's, it's maddening. I could never keep up that pace. That's why a lot of these guys fall into drugs and other, you know, alcohol, all these different vices is because just to keep going, just to keep sane or to just have a place of their own where they have a break, you know, a little place that's mine, you know, if they, if they say yes to a substance rather than some real life giving thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's where that's where it all comes down, and it's very unfortunate. That is that is one of the big pitfalls of of being a musician is that right. you have to take control of your personal soul and the person that you are. Because if you don't, it will be taken from you just by the machinery of of how this thing works. At least up till recently, you know. Now, with the when the pandemic happened, that sort of threw a big hydrogen bomb into the middle of the whole thing and i think it's given everyone a, a chance to think about them you know what they're doing yeah so it's been a in some cases a blessing in disguise because it's forced everyone to just stop you know and look inward look inside go deeper and and get off that train of just mindlessly working without you know thinking about your life
You mentioned Cornerstone. I feel like at one point you said something that you would realize that if it hadn't been for Cornerstone, that single event kept you going and kept you connected to a tribe of people that that you might have taken for granted for a while, but later came to realize that these people were really keeping you alive. Well, you know, our groups for the most part were not accepted or embraced by a lot of uh, the cultural events around uh, contemporary Christian music. That would include, uh, you know, the GMA convention, any of the music festivals, Jesus West Coast, or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we played a lot of them, but there was something about Cornerstone. First of all, it was created by musicians for musicians. They knew the unique needs that musicians had. You know, Glenn, Kaiser, and Wendy, and all those all those people there knew exactly what we needed and what we didn't need. And I think that because of that, it it fostered a, a safe haven for bands like us and, mm-hmm. and other artists. And as that festival grew, we were able to grow our fan base, uh, primarily in the Midwest, but I'll take it, you know. Um, nothing wrong with the Midwest. No, there's nothing wrong with the Midwest because there's a lot of people in the Midwest, whereas the no, West sure. Coast, if, if we had built our whole thing about out here, I would have starved to death. The yeah. East Coast is too far away, and the South, you know, it's hit and miss, and so is the North. Yeah. It's like that Midwest was the bread and butter of, uh, of, of the populace for consumers of our music, and I've been mm-hmm. grateful for it. It definitely is where you meet a lot of people that really care about what you're doing, and so... You know, I was eventually able to come to terms with that and be very fond of not only the Midwest, but Midwestern people. And I ended up meeting my wife there. So it's been it's been life changing on a number of levels. And Mm -hmm. that festival for a lot of years gave us an excuse, a deadline, uh, an audience. Sometimes we played main stage. Uh, more often we would play in a side tent, which I enjoyed way more because the energy was a little bit more contained you know when you play on a big stage uh there's so many distractions you you don't step on my cord and you know you know what i mean like it's (laughs) it's kind of an unwieldy beast and you know a lot of people look at that from a distance and they assume that you know when you play those large venues like that that it's such a thrill you know you you're just going to be so thrilled you can't stand yourself and in my case i never felt thrilled i felt it, it became more of a professional situation of trying to make sure that everything was worked, that you had enough room and that you could navigate the space. Whereas the smaller tent style stuff, the energy was so contained and so, you know, thick that we always played really, really good shows in those things. I think we did some really good shows on the main stage when we did them, but they're not as memorable to me. It's harder for me personally to taste it. Is what I'm, mm-hmm. what the way I feel. Even that time when we did, you know, do it for love, and the crowd chanted for thirty minutes right. after. You uh, know, I was told about <laughs> how great an experience that was for the audience, but for us, right. we're just sitting in our trailer going, "They're mad at us now because they want us to come. The crowd wants us back. The uh, stage manager does certainly does not, and the act that's supposed to follow us does not. What do we do?" <laughs> And you that know. was DC Talk. and I think It wasn't DC Talk. It was DC Talk that was supposed to be playing. Oh, I'm so and, glad that it was them. I, I'm yeah. really glad that we got them that way. I do think that the power of that is the power of the community that's in the crowd. And yeah. the fact that we're in on this secret and these bands and this festival and this, this, is, this is what makes us a unique tribe. I, I'm 
I, I wish something had risen up to replace Cornerstone when it went away. There's yeah. never going to be what Cornerstone was for that time, for that music, for for the way that was. And I, I don't sit around wishing for it to be back again. I was by the time it ended, I was really glad that it had because we started to feel very tired and very over the hill the last couple of years. You know, there was a time where we'd get off, we'd land there, and from the time I stepped out of the van. We were just inundated with fans and photographs and autographs and, and 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 then the last several years it was more like get out of my way old man you know. <laughs> I would love for you to think about everything from the the way you've studied music and valued and appreciated such a wide variety of records from the time you were a kid to the experience you had at the warehouse and exit and that community there to then Cornerstone and the Lost Dogs. With all of that in mind, what kind of guidance, what sort of inspiration might you have for this next generation that's coming up? What do they need to do to be able to accomplish what you guys were able to accomplish? Well, I don't think that they're going to be able to accomplish what we accomplished. They're going to accomplish what they need to accomplish. And, and so in order to really frame that question properly, you have to get inside the person that is asking it. Like, if, if someone young, and I do have younger musicians that come to me. I work, you know, in our local fellowship with young people who are learning how to play better and, and they're out there performing. And uh, a lot of them are, you know, maybe in awe of me or something I've done in the past or know that I have some stature somewhere along the way and they, they like how I play guitar or, or sing or whatever. And they're looking to me not for answers but to learn stuff and to try to catch some of that excitement and all I would tell them to do is to first of all have high standards in every aspect of what you're doing whether it reaches one person and your mom and your family and maybe some friends or millions of people on TikTok or the internet or wherever you're going to put it now try to aim high in other words when I decided that I wanted to be I knew that I'd gotten as far as I needed to get as a guitarist. I didn't want to get better because I was more appreciative of songwriters. And I thought, there's millions of amazing guitar players that can play rings around me. There always will be. But 
I already have more skill than I need to express myself in the style I like. So what is it I really want to do to make my mark? Well, why don't, why don't you try to write some good songs? Learn, how, learn what a good song is, learn how to write it. So then I aimed for the greatest writers that I could think of, like Leonard Cohen, Jimmy Webb, uh, Don Henley, who's, you know, I'm not a big Eagles fan, but I will say that Don Henley is a great songwriter. He knows what a great song is. He's a great lyricist. Paul Simon, obviously, you know. Um, that's four that I can think of. And there, there's, there's a lot more, but I would say those four guys are where I started when I went, okay, if you want to write songs, you need to really try to get as close as you can to those masters because those are the people that are going to inspire you to do great work. So... I always think it's about having a passion for what you're doing because if you're not really interested and in, in totally inside it, you're probably not going to succeed, you know. And that's one thing I've had. If I didn't have anything else, I had passion for music all my life and for the music I love. So that passion had to follow f from being a fan of that music to actually making it in a way that would create fans like me for my music. Um, mm -hmm. And it's always a thrill, and I know you know this too, like when you have someone, you know, who really digs something you did for the same reason you do, you know, right. because usually it's not the obvious thing. There's some little thing that happens during the course of a recording or a song where you may turn a phrase or you maybe knock something over and a glass fell and it got recorded, and someone notices that and said, you leaving that in there was genius, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. That's the stuff that I really get a big thrill out of. It's, you know, I mean... You know, it's kind of easy to take the sort of general, oh, you're such a great player or a great writer. But when some guy notices that you let that glass fall on purpose and that you kept it because it set off a bomb in your head, mm -hmm. that's the kind of stuff that that thrills me personally. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if I answered it, but it's like no, I, I just so. try to encourage people to do the very best they can with bring the passion they have for the music they love to what they're doing and try to emulate it. And I'm the biggest copier emulator. I'm shameless. Just, And I always say talent borrows, genius steals. In the end, it's all part of the folk tradition. I mean, Bob Dylan probably was the greatest thief there ever was. Lord of the Starfields Ancient of Days Universe Maker Here's a song in your praise Wings of a storm cloud Beginning and end You made my heart leap Like a banner in the wind Do you think you would have been able to sustain this kind of lifelong relationship with music if you hadn't had communities of people around you like the guys in the garage or the warehouse people or Cornerstone Festival, the Lost Absolutely Dogs? Absolutely not. Like how, no. how important are other people to our musical journeys as artists? Well, I think in my case it was, it was crucial 
because I've been able to ride off a lot of stolen valor from that community, you know. When people come to me and say, oh, I just love your music, and oh, my God, nowhere else is the greatest song ever. And I go, sorry, didn't write that song. Mm -hmm. I, I had the great fortune of working with a great songwriter who allowed me to sing that song and bring an interpretation to it that makes you think I wrote it. You know, mm -hmm. same way with This Is The Way Love Is, same way with Don't This Way. I could go mm -hmm. on and on, you know, and so Do it for love. We, you bet. Do it for love. That's Tootle and yeah. Steve Griffith. So yeah. a lot of this being surrounding yourself with people that that are talented and, and my gosh, in my case, I've been s surrounded by people I consider genius level talents. You know, it's it. it it helps you to do better if you mm -hmm. try to associate with people that are a little better than you, you know? Mm -hmm. I like playing with musicians that aren't as good as me because it's so much fun. And, you know, I make them <laughs> sound better and they make me play better. Yeah. Uh, but when you're learning and you're coming up and you're trying to, you know, get a foothold on what you're doing, I'd say anytime you can get with someone who's a little better than you and learn everything you can and copy all of it, you know, I had that in with records, you know, by listening to all the records I like. And then when I got with writers like Terry, I realized that here's a guy who has a work ethic that I don't have. You know, he gets up and writes whether he feels like it. He writes whether he's got an idea or not. He just does it. And that's why he's written thousands of songs for my dozens, right? He's going to leave a legacy behind of a catalog that is so rich and so diverse and so pregnant with thought and meaning and uh i'm in awe of him that's you know i'm a lazier personality than he is when it comes to that you know i just sort of write occasionally when i feel like it or when there's so much work that needs to be done i'll i'll kind of force myself and you know i wish i could be more like him so being associated with somebody like that you know uh is was good for me and Derry. Derry's a lot like me too you know he he tends to lean on Steve Hindelong, who's a lot more like Terry, who is a mm -hmm. someone who gets in and does that work. He's a kind of a now that he's been in Nashville, he knows how to get together with Nashville songwriters. They bring a couple ideas, and in two hours, they've got a great song. You know, so when mm -hmm. I go to Nashville, if I hang out with Steve and he's all wound up about an idea, I know that if I sit down with him in an hour or two, I'm going to have a collaborative effort that's really, really good. But mm -hmm. if left to myself, I would just say, let's go eat. You know. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm so lazy and so, you know, wasteful of my talent. I just am. That's just how I am. You know, I try to do better. Unfortunately, <laughs> I got a lot of people in. trying to pressure me right now to, <laughs> to get in there and finish a bunch of songwriting projects. So it's really good to have people around you that are motivated yeah. like that. I was flying like the wind, breathing fire like a dragon when my diesel truck left. Well, I thought that I was dreaming, but the Lord was talking to me, really laying the gospel down. I was praying and repenting, laughing and grinning, thought my diesel truck was heaven bound. Then the angel hit the air brakes and slowed my Jimmy down, made a three-point landing about a mile from town. It was the voice of Jesus. Say, got an angel riding shotgun, and he's riding with you all the way. All the way, he's riding with you all the way. 
I just feel like sometimes younger artists have the ability to build tracks on their computer to work at home in isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're emulating maybe a little farther than they should in some of those regards. Cause they're sort of using a, their work as a lot of a cut and paste of stuff, but they're missing that dynamic that comes from being in a gang. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is, and, and Cornerstone yeah. was like a big gang and yep. it was a city that would show up and we could all be citizens of that city for a week. Uh, a band when it's working is like a little gang and you have to show up and, and carry your weight and do your part. You know, mm-hmm. it's, there's something about, there's something in there that's spiritual, that's connected to the community aspect of music that, that uh, I think younger artists miss out on if they're, if they don't, do all yeah. those gigs. Well, I hope that places. they're finding a way to create that community. I mean, you know, every generation leaves the next one with a lot of unfinished business. And I think that somehow youth always finds a way that there's enough motivation and enough excitement about what they're doing that they are going to find it one way or another. It's just not going to look or feel like what you and I had, you know. Right. right. And if we have to be old now, you know, it's like I wake up every day and I go, is this the best I'm going to feel all day? I can barely walk. I can barely put my weight on my feet. And I just, oh, my gosh, it takes so long to wake up and then trying to figure out what I got to do. And I just think, well, this really sucks. But if I have to be old now and, and my life is now heading into September, October or later, God knows when. Right. I, I'm grateful that I was born at a time when the kind of community you're talking about was necessary in order to be part of music. You couldn't be an isolationist very much. So, yeah, I mean, it certainly meant a lot to us. And yeah. we made a lot of friends that way. I just think nowadays it's it's a virtual world. It's a lot, it's happening more online and it's happening in a different kind of way. I don't know. Do do teenagers still hang out in bedrooms and garages and jam? I You know, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I think that all ends up taking care of itself. I, I don't worry about the next generation or what it's like now. You know, they'll figure it out right. and hopefully enjoy it as much as we did. Just It's just going to look different. Every Saturday morning was uh, quite an experience when I was a kid. My dad used to crank up the country music station and play it for three, four hours at a time. It was like a Chinese water torture at but uh, I eventually learned to love it, and uh, this is one of the songs that uh, I used to hear quite often. Hank Williams wrote it, but uh, the Bill Monroe sort of bluegrass version was the one that I liked quite a bit. So we thought we'd uh, do it for some of the old timers and for some younger people that maybe have never seen a banjo before and might think it's a synthesizer or something. <laughs> I'd also like to dedicate this to Lewis. Last question, when you think about everything you've been a part of, uh, especially in this strange space between spiritual and carnal, between you know rock and roll and the gospel and all that stuff, 
what have you learned about the connection between the spiritual in this rock and roll world? Well, that's a, you know, that's a question that could take up an entire show. Um, to try to consolidate an answer for it, all I can tell you about is my own personal experience and try to be true to what it is I think I was supposed to do. I grew up with a love for this music and a love for God. Um, I I didn't know how to combine them. I didn't know, you know, I had this vague idea in the back of my mind of what it would look like or feel like, but it, there was no real way to articulate it. And especially in those days, there was the world and there was the church. You know, the two didn't really meet. You were either in the world or you were in in church and and you, if you tried to bring them together you were in big trouble you know there was no way to combine them without soiling yourself with the world or, you know you were either a gospel artist or you were a rock and roll person um mm. and so when i had this cosmic experience with god in the late 70s what that led to was a was a directive a direct not a command but a you know, get thee out into a place where I'm going to show you, right? It was very Old Testament, very biblical. And where it led me was to, to Sacramento, to the warehouse ministries, which I only knew about. I'd visited once before. It wasn't on my radar. It was something I knew about. It was just a church that had concerts every weekend, and it had a lot of cool young people in it, right? Mm-hmm. But I never wanted to live in Sacramento. God forbid. I didn't want to leave my family, leave my friends, leave my band, my girlfriends. I mean, I had it made down in San Jose. That was just, I was coddling myself with my own personal history and everything that I loved, right? The, the thought of having to just put all that away and to walk into a new situation in a new town with new people that I didn't know was abhorrent. And it was, it put me in, into an emotional tailspin that is indescribable. But once I finally followed that directive from God and got there, the world started to open up. And as it did, I started, I met Peacock, I met Abeg, I dragged Griffith up from San Jose. This exit thing happened. Before I knew it, I had hundreds, if not thousands of friends and thousands of opportunities to do something that would have never happened if I'd stayed in San Jose. I would have ended up Working at a tech company, I would have worked for Intel, Apple, Memorex. I probably would have made a million billion dollars and would have had some band that I played with on the weekends, you know, because I look at all my friends that I left behind there. That's what they all did. You know, Mm. music became just a secondary thing or a memory. For me, it became a full-time obsession, occupation that was linked to a spiritual in my personal case, it was a spiritual directive or a, or a calling, if you will. In the evangelical tradition I was raised in, when you were called to the ministry, it was always right to Bible school, right? Then you go mm-hmm. get a church, you become a pastor, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Assemblies of God pastor, right? And, and then, you know, you have an affair and then your whole life falls apart and that's, the, you know, you live in disgrace, right? I'm just being facetious, but uh, I didn't have any kind of... Uh, sort of contour or construct of what this life was that I was stepping into this unknown. There was no roadmap. There was no, well, you know, I know that if I go up there that, that I'm going to do this, that, or the other. I didn't know anything. All I knew that I was, was that I was to show up and, 
and tell these people what happened to me and just say, here I am. I'm supposed to be here. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? And that's what I did. Well, I didn't know that it would lead to knowing you and knowing Terry and knowing, you know. I mean, a million billion things happened all because of that, that incident that I felt God was directing me. decades trying to figure out well what am I what does this mean am I a pastor or a Christian am I a mystic am I a you know then I at some point I decided well I, I, my calling is to be an artist and that's very serious right and, and then I thought well maybe I'm a priest you know but I don't know it you know maybe I'm both maybe it's somewhere in between and the only thing I've been able to go on is the response I get from individuals you know in the 80s they wrote letters hundreds mm -hmm hundreds and hundreds of letters. Eventually those letters turned to emails and then the emails turned to private messages on Facebook and other social media. The one consistent thing that I've gleaned from all of that communication is a huge thank you because, and then you can fill in the blanks, either mm -hmm. I was I was confused about my faith. I didn't know what I believed. This gave me a place to live it out or be myself authentically, right? Mm -hmm. To be me, not some person in a church that's being squeezed into a mold by their church community. The other thing would be something like, I was pregnant. I was going to abort my child. I heard your pretty baby. I didn't abort. Here's the photograph. Here's my kid. This kid lives because of that song. That's, I mean, I don't even like to touch yeah. that because when that stuff happens, I just go, all I can do is stand back and just go, praise God, I marvel at this because I had nothing to do with it. All I did was have a little bucket of water that I just carried, you know? Mm -hmm. That's all it was. I just, I had the tools, I had my pencil, I had a guitar, I wrote a song, and it became infused with this meaning by God somehow, and it goes out into the world, and people hear it, and all of a sudden something magical happens to them in their life, you know? I didn't even know what happened. I had nothing to do with it. So when I see all that stuff going on, I just, I just go, okay, now I understand what this was all about. Is that for me personally, I had all this, you know, I wanted to do all this stuff, but I, I, I was raised in a tradition that sort of, you know, couched it in certain terms, in certain paths that didn't, that meant nothing to me. It's like, there was no way I was going to go to some Bible college and be a, a pastor. There was just no way I was, I was going to do that. You know, mm -hmm. I, I needed to play music and I, and I wanted to write songs. I wanted to be a good guitar player and a good songwriter and a good singer, you know, and, and I managed to do all of those good at times and other times struggling. It, to me, it's like I say, it's a workshop. But the spiritual aspect of it 
happens alongside. It's it's the space in between being an artist or being a, a guitar player, or whatever, and God out there working in people's lives, and the stuff somehow gets to them, and it makes a connection and makes a change. It's like that makes sense to me. I can't. I don't want to take credit for it, and I don't want to touch it. That's God's work. All I know to do is what I do, you know. And mm -hmm. if that stuff happens. I'm just in awe of it. It's a great honor to be part of something like that, but that was never my intention. That's not something I know about. That's only something I can hear about. And I've been very grateful to every person who has confided in me about, you know, what changes came about in their life for good, hopefully, because of mm -hmm. some music I was involved in, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's no greater honor, really, and that's the, that's the thing that's kept me going and kind of kept me from losing my faith because... Every day I wake up and I, I think, have, am I conning myself? You know, it's just, are the all the atheists right? And we're, we're just, you know, we're just salt, carbon, and water just sort of banging around in this universe, you know? And because it all makes sense. All their arguments make sense to me. It's like, I'll give them all of that. Yes, that all makes sense. But I can't, I can't deny my experience. I can't refute what has happened to me, you know? Uh, so I can tell you this great lyric that a friend of mine wrote. I don't know if these stories are true, but they happened to me. And that's the, that's the one I hang. I'm going to put that on my gravestone because it's like I can't sit here and qualitative. You know, I can't, I can't give you a rock solid proof that any of this is real. All I know is that it's happening to me. It's the only reason why my life makes any sense. You know, if it's some great cosmic accident and it's the universe is laughing behind our back, well, you know, we'll all find out soon enough. But I'm going to stick with what I know to be true, because it's it certainly makes sense given the tra trajectory my life has had. You know, my life doesn't make any sense without that. It it just how could that have happened? I mean, I'm not smart enough to have known that if I came up here that all that stuff would happen. I'm just not that kind of person. You know, I, I'm just not. I'm not even that particularly that spiritual. I've just responded to something that I could, a, a gift I couldn't refuse. Cheers to grace and gentle faith to losses and wins to loved ones gone Friends moving on to beginnings and to ends. Here's to revelry and levity, to charity and grace. With tears for all, we've made feel small for the souls we So it goes, the river flows, the years roll down the line. And so it goes, my dear departed friends, we'll meet again in some other place in time. 
Michael Rowe, thank you for being a part of this podcast and being a part of our lives and part of this tribe and this gang for all these years. It means just so much to us. Thank you. Uh, your friendship means a lot. And the fact that you're still interested in this, uh, you're, you know, you were a teenager and it meant a lot to you. But the fact that it still means a lot to you now, that's a great honor to me because uh, that means that maybe there was something there all along. my soapbox here. I'm honestly kind of blown away about this whole conversation and the decades of memories, frustrations, near misses, and glorious glimpses that have gotten us to this point. In the eyes of many who manipulate the music business or machinery, this is a story of failure. But in this upside-down world where we detach from a more cynical definition of success and embrace the mystery of grace, this is a powerful example of the last being first and the satisfaction of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Yes, the 77s should have been right up there with, well, insert the name of your favorite rock or alternative gods or goddesses here. The 7s can stand toe-to-toe with just about all of them. And I love stories of bands or solo artists like Rowe striving for excellence deep into their careers. But when I find an artist that works so hard and is just so good without the support of record companies, the financial success that hits bring, or really any measurable or tangible evidence of success, I am truly inspired. What keeps artists at it like this when it's all a struggle and nothing is secure? I think it's love. And when I say that, I'm not talking about mere dedication to craft. I'm talking about that world-changing kind of love that hopes all things, believes all things, and endures all things. Roe and his friends, as they sang so perfectly over 30 years ago, have done it for love. And the fans, friends really, who continue to back the Kickstarter campaigns, drop tips in the virtual YouTube tip jar, and support the increasingly rare tours, they're doing it for love too. And love conquers all. If you're a young artist trying to cut through today, take some inspiration from Michael Rowe, a guy who's been at it for over 50 years. Be careful how you define success and make sure you are studying the greats, challenging yourself by their example and holding your work to their standards. If you're a longtime fan feeling alone in this upside down world, hang in there. You are not alone. We're all here in the pit with you, fists and voices raised. And if you find yourself like Mike did back in the 70s, feeling a call, a hunger, a challenge to move into a new space of one kind or another, don't miss it. Roe definitely took the road less traveled, and what a difference it has made. The true heroes always take that dodgy, dangerous, dark path, don't they? Be a hero. Do it for love. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now.
That's going to do it for this epic episode of the True Tunes podcast. Thank you, Mr. Rowe, Doc Love. I can't wait to see you on stage again. Thanks for caring about your work and your listeners so deeply. I'm so glad my youth pastor agreed to take me to Cornerstone almost 40 years ago so you and the Sevens could mess me up so wonderfully. Your music has provided a soundtrack to my life and has drawn me into an unlikely community of outsiders and misfits that helps this world make just a little bit more sense to me. And to all of the friends and comrades who sent in those wonderful audio postcards, thanks again. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. It's harder than ever to cut through and we need your help. Let's get the 77s and Lost Dogs music out there in front of a whole new audience in this crazy new world. Thanks to my partner and co-producer Bruce A. Brown for caring so much about the sonic and musical details. You'll find a list of all of the songs used on this show on the show notes page, and it's quite a list. Don't miss the special playlist we have compiled either, including the mix curated by Michael Rowe himself. Please give us a review and a rating at Apple Podcast and tell your friends about the show. Find and follow our weekly Spotify mix. Sign up on our email list. We've got some amazing stuff in store and I can't wait. And if you are able to support this show with a monthly gift, please check out our Patreon program. One-time donations or tips can also be made via PayPal. Thanks for helping however you can. The contents of this podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, once again, this is JJT reminding you, stay tuned, stay true, and do it for love. Peace. Let's say goodbye like we said hello in a friendly kind of way.